Hey, it's Jeff, and I'm happy to announce that Skylar and I will be collaborating on a series of retreats in 2024 at Commune Topanga. The first one is happening April 5th through 7th. Now, these weekends are really designed to foster greater balance in your life. The well-being, as I've discovered in all of its expressions, springs forth from balance. We seek to balance our relationships, balance our budgets, and of course, balance our blood sugar levels. So if health emerges from balance, well, illness stems from imbalances, and we see evidence of imbalances all around us, from imbalanced immune systems and hormones to emotional disequilibrium. So if you break down the root cause of virtually all of our modern imbalances, you will find that they come from our convenience culture, sedentary indoor temperature-controlled lives filled with a surfeit of shelf-stable refined calories and a dearth of in-real-life connections. Well, these retreats upend convenience culture. They're all about realigning our biology to foster balance, homeostasis. So this will include movement like yoga and hiking sessions, focusing the mind through meditation and breath work, optional ice plunges and saunas, and enjoying delicious farm-sourced meals around big communal tables. I'll also be reading some of my favorite commusings as we snuggle around the fire at night. When's the last time you've been read a story? So I hope you can join us at our Balance Weekend Retreat. The first one is happening April 5th through 7th at Commune Topanga with support from our dear friends at Bevo Barefoot. So just go to onecommune.com retreat for more info. And I'll see you in the Santa Monica Mountains. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. Today on the show, I welcome the exuberant and ebullient Emily Fletcher. Emily is the founder of Ziva Meditation host of the podcast, Why Isn't Everyone Doing This?, and a speaker who radiates her passion for alchemic healing to audiences around the globe. In our conversation, Emily introduces the concept of embodied manifestation, which combines meditation, mindfulness, and manifesting. She shares her philosophy that when these practices are combined, the results transcend the sum of their parts. We also dive into Emily's current work, which emphasizes the importance of reclaiming sexual energy as a tool for manifestation and spiritual growth and disrupts our ingrained societal conditioning around pleasure and sexuality. Emily explains a simple three-step practice called visualize, alchemize, and magnetize for harnessing sexual energy for the purposes of manifestation. This involves visualization, clearing emotional blocks, and directing energy towards manifesting desires. She also guides me through a breathwork technique called lifegasm breath. Don't worry, still a PG episode. But this breath activates energy centers in the body. And chances are this technique will be new to you. Our discussion underscores the importance of finding pleasure and enjoying spiritual practices and even the dirge of meditation itself. Okay, but before we dive in, 
I'm so grateful to those who write reviews on Apple Podcasts. It makes a huge difference in the discoverability of the show. So we created a special offer just for you, 30 days of free commune membership. That's all access for a whole month. Just scroll down to the review section and tap write a review. Then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of your review, preferably a good one, to receive your free all access for 30 days. And while you're there, make sure that you are subscribed. Okay, this was a lively conversation full of inspiring ideas. I expected nothing less. And without further delay, I now present to you Emily Fletcher. Emily Fletcher, welcome back to the Commune Podcast. What a treat. Is this my second time on? Certainly your second. I remember you wrote a book, which I believe was titled Stress Less, Accomplish More. Am I right it's on that? memory. Yes, it was exactly There we that. go. Yep. Well, I've been doing my meditation, which uh, enhances <laughs> memory, memory apparently. Um, <laughs> and that was a number of years ago. I mean, that seems pre-COVID. It was. It right? was 2019, yeah. so right before COVID. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then I remember the last time we were together, I believe in four-dimensional space time was at commune topanga i believe in jasper must have been very young because yes. he was we there and i think your mom was there mom was there <laughs> ricky lake was there um jessica right. jessica who's the woman who writes the books with deepak chopra uh, uh, Mary, oh, uh kimberly snyder kimberly maybe snyder yeah. yeah i met so many amazing yes. people there and you were just developing the property then it felt like and now That's it's a right. full-blown center be careful what you wish for, Fletcher. Is it a lot? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's incredibly gratifying and the septic breaks in, in oh. equal measure. You know okay. what I mean? Septic breaks is uh, real life. That's real adulting. Yeah, it's like there's Gabor Mate and the septic broke. <laughs> <laughs> Russell Brand and we're, we're shoveling shit. <laughs> yeah, yep. pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's it's wonderful to see you and have you back. And next time it'll be uh, IRL, as they say. So you always have a pillow in a cabin in the Santa Monica Mountains with me. I, I or not necessarily you. with me, but you know what I mean. <laughs> we'll talk to Skylar. We'll talk to Skylar. <laughs> right. I've been talking to her about that for 36 years to no avail. So there you go. I'm a very good negotiator. I know you are, which is one of the reasons why we're here. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, this is off to a wonderful start. Um, no, but um, it was funny. I, I, so a couple of years ago, I did my own course on Stoicism. And I, as part of it, I had a number of Stoic contemplations. I want to be careful to use the word meditation properly in your presence. I will say contemplations, yeah. <laughs> one of which centered around the notion of loving what you have. Mm. And this sort of centers around the idea that in this inexorable search for happiness, we always feel like there's something out there, some external agent that will fulfill our perceived discontents, et cetera. And in that course, I use getting the big break on Broadway as that shiny object. And then when I was thinking about it last night, I was like, 
in a twist of like literal absurdity. I was like, that is exactly what happened to Emily Fletcher. So maybe just as a, as a means to ground the conversation, scaffold it a bit and, and give you a little biography. Can you talk about what led you into this big, beautiful world of meditation? Mm-hmm. So it was right before that, it was a big, beautiful world of Broadway. And it was very much what I dreamt of doing <laughs> yeah. since I was a little girl. Um, you know, since I think fourth grade, I read the newspaper. I was on the floor of my mom's bathroom and I saw an ad for a place called Young Actors Theater. I said, Mom, I want to go here. And she enrolled me and I started studying voice and dance and acting. And I did that. I went, I was musical theater major. So I moved to New York my second day in New York. I got my first professional job. A lot of people are like, wait, that's not a thing. And it was, I got to play Radio City Music (laughs) Hall. And then I went to Russia and then I got my first Broadway show. Hmm. And three weeks later was the saddest I had ever been. And I remember I was, I had like one of those big, like cellular, not cellular, it was like a remote phone. Remember like an actual landline, but it was remote. (laughs) And I was talking (laughs) to my mom and I told her I got the job and then she said something. And I remember I threw the phone across the living room and I like slid down my kitchen wall, sobbing in tears in a very dramatic fashion as only a 21 year old could, as only a 21 year old who had just achieved her lifelong ambition could. And, and I remember thinking, why am I so sad? And I, it wasn't until later that I realized, oh, I'm more interested in the happiness of pursuit than I am the Mm. pursuit of happiness. But I was actually happiest when I was moving towards the goal and towards the dream and taking classes and auditioning. And then once I got the goal, I didn't know what to work towards. And I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll be happy Mm. in my next Broadway show, my next boyfriend, my next agent, my next zero in the bank account. And I did that for 10 years until finally I started going gray in my 20s, started suffering from insomnia, getting sick and, and like confused, like I'm doing it. I'm doing the thing, why am I miserable? And then I found meditation. Long story short, first day of my first class, I'm in a different state of consciousness than I had ever been in before. I liked it. That night I slept through the night for the first time in 18 months. I have every night since. That was 16 years ago. I stopped going gray. I didn't get sick for eight and a half years. I started enjoying my job again. And I thought, why isn't everyone doing this? So it's not, it's not just the name of my podcast. It's actually like what that is. When I find things that work, I cannot help myself. I'm like, burp, 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 burp. like I have to shout it from the rooftops. I think we're similar in that way. And so I went to India. I trained for three years to be a teacher. I opened up Ziva back in 2010 made the world's first online meditation training, which seems inconceivable now, but we didn't know if it was gonna work or not. And then shortly thereafter, it felt like meditation became so mainstream, like it's almost passe now to be a meditation teacher, which back then it was, it's hard for people under 40 to remember, but it was like weird and only monks meditated. And my ex-husband wouldn't talk about me as a meditation teacher at cocktail parties because it was too weird. <laughs> and then the book came out in 2019, which is I got to meet when I got to meet you. I did a book event at Wanderlust. I was on the podcast. And then in 2020, I don't know if you if you noticed, but like the world changed a little bit <laughs> and and my life changed very dramatically as well. And I discovered all of these new tools, all of these embodied manifesting tools. And it felt like nature started fire hosing me with this uh, like fire hose and sacred sexuality. And I was like, wait, this is amazing. And thank you personally. But it felt like nature was doing that for another reason. It was like, hey, you know that thing you did for meditation? 
Now it's time to do that with embodied manifesting. Now it's time to do that with sacred sexuality. And so now here I am again, finding myself with these tools and I'm like, why isn't everyone doing this? It's just these tools are a little bit more taboo and a little bit, uh, a little bit spicier. <laughs> I think that's your natural habitat though, to be on the bleeding edge <laughs> of things, right? It's yeah. like, oh, meditation. Oh yeah. We sort of did that, done that. It's on the cover of time magazine every other week. Now I need to move on to something a little bit more, um, on the edge, but you know, it, it's funny when you describe that the joy of the pursuit yeah, and, and really that is actually tied into the dopamine reward system. It's actually the anticipation of the thing that triggers that process. Is that um, that's rolling? It's like, what's next? What's next? What's next? Yeah. In fact, it's funny. I came across, uh, do you remember Winnie the Pooh? I mean, you have a young I do. son. He might've grown out of Winnie the Pooh at this point, but there's this <laughs> wonderful- Did you ever really grow out of it though? <laughs> no, clearly not. Cause I'm about to quote it. Um, <laughs> uh, where, where, where there's a scene where um, I think Christopher Robin asks Winnie the Pooh, like, you know, what's the most favorite thing that ever happens in your life or whatever? And he's just about to say, like, when I get, when I eat the honey, you know, but he says, no, it's that moment just before I eat the honey. <laughs> and um, yes. of course, you know, your Broadway job the honey, a new car, that new boyfriend, a new house with the fancy turrets, whatever it is. There's always another glistening object that appears on the horizon, mm -hmm. you know, the moment that Amazon package arrives and, and we cut the ribbon off it. And so as a means to actually find contentment in life, uh, yes, we can continue to sort of bridge that chasm between where we are and where we think our happiness is by continuing to you know, inexorably chase things outside of us, or we can be here now in gratitude with what we already have. And this is, I think, um, you know, meditation is obviously, uh, useful in all in, in myriad ways, but that's one way, mm -hmm. um, you know, is, is to ground us in, in the loving of what we already have. I think, you know, one decent place to start with is just stress. Because, you know, at Commune, we do these annual surveys to about a million, 1.2 million people or something on our email list. And we say, hey, what's up? What do you need in your life? What's the, what's troubling you the most? And stress and anxiety are always atop the list. Mm -hmm. So as we kind of move through this conversation into kind of more of your current endeavors, maybe you could just kind of address stress as a base case here. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I think you just named it. I would define stress as the distance between where you are and where you think you should be, mm. right? This stress is the difference between where the distance between where you are and where you think you should be. And, and I call this the I'll be happy when syndrome, like what you just said, the shiny glistening object. I'll be happy when, I'll be happy when, I'll be happy when. And it's fine to understand that as an intellectual concept, but the only antidote that I have found that has really alleviated the I'll be happy when syndrome for me viscerally is meditation. And, and specifically, the style that I teach at Ziva is giving your body rest that's five times deeper than sleep. And that's an important point because 
when you give your body that deep rest, it's not just healing itself from the stress from today. It's not just like, oh man, elections coming up and you know, my kids home from school and my boss was looked at me sideways. It's not just the stuff that's going on in your mind from today. It's all the stuff that's been stored in our cellular memory, not only from our past, but from our parents' past and our parents' parents' past, and likely even seven generations back. They've proven as much as two, but people hypothesize as much as seven generations past, we are inheriting that stress in our epigenetic memory. And so meditation is not just like a cute bubble bath for your brain. It's not just about handling your stress in today or like a state change for today. You are actually going in and de-exciting your nervous system. When you de-excite something, you create order. When you create order in your body, then that lifetime of accumulated stress can start to come up and out. So the beautiful part is that you're not just going back to homeostasis. You're not just going back to even. You're actually giving yourself more bandwidth, more computing power, more energy, because your body is not working so hard, being mired down with that accumulation of stresses that we've all been going through, especially over the last many years, especially as AI speeds things up, especially as our soil becomes more depleted, especially as we continue these environmental and social burdens that we have on us as individuals and societally, we need deeper and more potent tools to bring us not only into balance, but into bliss. It's like we incarnated for joy, we incarnated for pleasure, we incarnated because we wanted to have fun in the 3D, not just like run around, like freaking out about everything we have yet to accomplish. And so what I invite people to do is they're like really deciding, do I want to invest this time in myself? Do I want to invest this time in these practices? And they say, okay, how, just think about yesterday. How many minutes of how many hours just yesterday did you spend worshiping your worries? Most people are like two, six, eight hours. I'm like, okay. 15 minutes. Would you take 15 minutes of those six hours you spent worshiping your worries and flood your brain with dopamine and serotonin? Wake up that internal cocktail of bliss chemicals that nature has installed inside of you so that you can then go deliver that bliss to your family, to your lover, to your kids, to your job, to your mission. And when people think about it like that, they're like, oh yeah, yeah, that sounds good. Hey, it's Jeff. And as an athlete, I've been told my entire life to make sure that I get enough electrolytes. But it's only recently that I have truly understood what electrolytes are and the many essential physiological functions that they fulfill. Okay, so you ready for Electrolytes 101? Here we go. When essential minerals like sodium, potassium, chloride, and magnesium dissolve in a fluid, they form electrolytes, positive or negative ions needed to maintain vital bodily functions. For example, sodium ions are used by the brain to send electrical signals, hello electrolytes, through your neurons in order to communicate with other neurons and the cells throughout your body. So electrolytes are key for brain health. Sodium also retains water and maintains proper hydration levels and fluid balance in your cells through a process called osmosis. Now, calcium and potassium are needed for muscle contraction. They facilitate muscle fibers to slide together and move over each other 
as the muscle shortens and contracts. And magnesium is also required in this process so that the muscle fibers can relax after contraction. Now, magnesium is a total other beast. It plays a role in protein synthesis, sleep, and blood sugar balance, and hundreds of other functions. Now, it's for all these reasons and more that I add element to my water. Element is a tasty electrolyte drink mix with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. And guess what? No sugar. Element is sweetened with stevia, a plant-based sugar substitute that won't spike glucose levels. A 20-ounce serving of many popular sports drinks that I'm sure you know can contain 36 grams of sugar. It's absurd that those products are marketed as healthy when they contain almost as much sugar as a soda. Many listeners know that I still play competitive tennis. Now, before I started using Element, I was prone to fatigue and cramping during long matches due to the loss of sodium. No longer. I'm right there moving like a panther at the end of a grueling three-set match. So right now, Element is offering Commune listeners a free sample pack with any purchase. That's eight single-serving packets free with any Element order. This is a great way to try all eight flavors or share Element with a salty friend. Get yours at drinkelement.com commune. This deal is only available through my link. You must go to D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T, drinkelement.com slash commune. Element offers no questions around refunds, so try it totally risk-free. If you don't like it, share it with a friend and they will give you your money back. No questions asked. You've got nothing to lose. So go to drinkelement.com slash commune. As you point out, you know, we're not just meditating for ourselves, we're meditating in the grandiose scheme for the universe, but also for our children. And, you know, as you point out, uh, I know this uh, doctor named Rachel Yehuda has done all that work on epigenetics, studying the progeny of Holocaust victims in, I think it's Cleveland, Ohio. Mm. And she shows how these methylation markers are passed down generation kind of transgenerationally, mm -hmm. um, even to kids who grew up in middle-class Cleveland, you know, and so there, we have to take responsibility, not just for ourselves, but, you know, for the world around us and for the people that, that we love. So there's just really, you know, no reason, as you say, not to find the profitability in this, in this practice. I like the, the term chain breakers, which I've just recently mm. learned of like, nice. you know, who among us is going to break the chain? And, and, and what I like to argue is that it doesn't have to suck. Like it might hurt yeah. a little. Yes. It's, you know, all of us have been trained to not feel our feelings, to not cry, to not be angry. So you might have to feel some feelings, but even that can be fun. You can even find ecstatic bliss in the releasing of the feelings. <laughs> and so yeah. I'm just like, I'm just champ championing for, can we heal? Can we solve these challenges and have a great time doing it? Yeah. Chain breaking. That's a, Beautiful image there. Mm -hmm. I mean, Skylar gave a little toast 
uh, against her will. I think she was called upon to give a toast at some family event recently. And I never heard her say this before. I'm just reflecting on it now in the moment. But you know, she said, you know, the thing that she was most, I guess, proud on some level of herself is that she was able to break certain family cycles of trauma mm. in, in her own life with our children and, uh, and chain break in, in that sense. And, you know, certainly we need the tools to be able to do that, you know, to access cognitive reappraisal, et cetera, to find that, that space between stimulus and response, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think one of the other interesting elements of stress particularly like when it's chronic, because acute stress can be very protective and adaptive, um, as I've heard you talk about many times and, mm -hmm. you know, fight or flight on the Serengeti, et cetera, as a, you know, a bi biological imperative to stay alive. But when we get into chronic stress, it, it, it really has a detrimental impact on creativity. Mm -hmm. Because when you think about what happens when you're in a stress state, so your pupils dilate, you become very, your, your attention becomes very, very narrowed you're for good reason in, on the Serengeti. But when you have a very narrow aperture of attention, you know, it is very, very hard to access creativity. So could you take some time and sort of bridge that relationship between meditation and, and creative energy? Mm, yes. So exactly like what you said, when we go into fight or flight, like not only do we get myopic, not only does the body go into survival mode uh, physically, but all of that blood and energy inside of the brain goes to the amygdala, which is the fear center of the brain. <clears throat> and so that thing is trying to keep the meat suit alight, alive at all costs. Mm -hmm. So there's not much bandwidth, both energetically or physically, left over for creative pursuits. And if you think about it, like what is creation? Like at its purest form, like one of the most potent, divine, creative acts we can do as humans is make another human, right? It's like birth another baby. And, and so this creation, and so, and so the sexual energy, creation energy, creativity, all of that goes way to the back burner if, if evolution is not sure that this body is going to stay alive. Like it, it needs all of its resources to protect this one. And so when people are feeling chronically burned out, when people are, are not able to hear their intuition, when people are not able to make decisions, usually it's just an indicator that they've been dealing with too much low-grade fight or flight for too long. And then the brain starts to wire in that way. It's like, you know, what wires together or what fires together wires together. And so we start to build these neuro grooves and these highways in our brains. And then it's like, oh, well, that road is paved. I'll just take that paved road right back to the amygdala, right back to the fear center. So the beautiful mm -hmm. part about meditation is that we're not just changing things energetically. We're actually changing things chemically. So instead of just producing that adrenaline and cortisol, um, which are acidic in nature, which prematurely age the body, we then start to stop that production and then start to produce more dopamine, more serotonin, which are alkaline in nature. So the chemistry changes. But then what's more exciting to me is that you can change neurogenesis, you can increase the brain's ability to create new neurons, and you strengthen the corpus callosum, which is the bridge between the right and left hemispheres of the brain. And when all of that energy isn't going into the amygdala, 
you have more blood, more energy to start to light up more of the brain. And so if you look at a brain scan of someone meditating, it's similar to someone on mushrooms or LSD, because it's like that neurogenesis, that blood and energy spreads around more of the brain. It's like more of it lights up. And so from my understanding, a creative brain is a brain where the left and right hemispheres are functioning, not necessarily in equal measures, but they're both lighting up and they're communicating with each other. Now we know that meditators have thicker corpus callosums than non-meditators, which again, that is the bridge between the right and left hemispheres of the brain. Now we know that, you know, this is obviously a gross oversimplification, but right brain is intuition, present moment awareness, downloads, creativity, flow, colors, and, sorry, and left brain is, you know, math, logistics, planning, past, future. And it, I almost think of them as masculine and feminine. Right. The, the left brain is that masculine structure, timing, boundaries, uh, planning. But the right brain is the thing that animates the structure. Right. If, if, like a, if the light doesn't come into an atom, it dies. If there's not the gel in the middle of the cell, it dies. Like we really do need that balance between masculine and feminine. And I think if you look at a human brain, it's a perfect example of that. Nature gave us 50-50 for a reason, and yet most of us are using 90-10, and I think that that's because of stress, because we are constantly protecting ourselves and looking out for what's the next threat. So what the beautiful part about meditation is that it gets you out of that fight or flight. It moves you into what I call stay and play. Like I said, whole brain lights up, neurochemistry changes, neurogenesis increases, corpus callosum gets thicker, this communication between past and future and present moment, masculine and feminine, all of this starts to balance out. And so I think that some of the challenges that we're facing on the planet and as a species are a direct result of this imbalance of masculine and feminine, this imbalance of structure and flow. And so my hypothesis is that if we could get more individuals into this beautiful relationship between the left and right hemispheres of their brain, the masculine and feminine size, that we would start to see a rebalancing of masculine and feminine energies on the planet. And that to me is a very exciting proposition for the future because I don't know that we can account for the amount of magic that is capable when we start to rebalance that. Mm, beautifully articulated. <clears throat> There's a friend of mine, this woman, Lynn Twist. I'm not sure you ever came I across her. But yeah, she, uh, she has a, kind of an indigenous prophecy that she talks about. She obviously goes to the Ecuadorian rainforest quite a bit. And she talks about like a great condor or some sort of really beautiful big bird who's had, who's just flying with its masculine wing and its feminine wing has not yet to be unfurled. Mm -hmm. And if you can imagine that, what happens? Well, you're just flying in circles, right? You're not <laughs> soaring. Um, you know, you're not using sort of the innate structure of the bird to catch the wind and just to effortlessly flow with nature. Yes. So, and in this prophecy, of course, you know, it's an optimistic one, <laughs> like slowly this great condor unfurls its feminine wing and the world comes into um, the, the kind of balance that our hearts know is possible. And of course, you know, this, this is also part of traditional Chinese Taoist philosophy, et cetera, with the, you know, most typified by the yin yang, right? That, you know, or nature has a, Lingam, like the Shiva Shakti in the temples in India, like it's this masculine feminine or some of the most sacred sites in India. Absolutely. And so I, I think it's, it's being able to find, as you say, that, that tenuous sensitive balance on the teeter totter, right? Between wisdom and knowledge and structure and 
and intuition, et cetera. And certainly this is a lifelong pursuit for me because my, my tendency is to be kind of like empirical, right? <laughs> what do you mean em empirical? How? Well, like I'm looking for, like, I want the empirical evidence and yeah. I'm going to, you know, read PubMed until I, I, you know, can't keep my eyes open any longer, you know, instead of necessary, instead of intuitively listening to my body and actually checking in with how I truly feel, I mm. want to cognitively understand it, you know, yeah. and, and yeah, this, is your trap, job, this is a trap door, right? Like what you have done is brought together all of these magic makers, all of these intuitive healers, right? Like you live in the mountains of California. So I think you do have that balance, right? Like you, you've created the structure for these very, um, like, inspired flowing channel teachers to come through and bring in that light and that feminine energy. Yeah. Well, I'm learning slowly. We all um, are. <laughs> you know, one of the pushbacks I get on meditation, uh, and, and they're, they're multifarious, but one of them is that I get from people who are ambitious. Um, you know, that oh, I don't have time for this, you know, passivity or this equipoise, you know, that's not for me, but obviously you're a very ambitious human being. And, and so can you kind of deconstruct that myth of non-attachment? I mean, can, can ambition and equipoise coexist? Well, first you'll have to define what equipoise is for me. So equanimity or just uh -huh. uh, non-attachment. Okay. Yes. I would argue that non-attachment is a key ingredient in manifestation. And if you want to manifest your big ambitious goals, you better figure out how to be non-attached <laughs> because if you have a death grip on those desires, nature can't actually give you the thing. Like if you think mm -hmm. that that next company acquisition or the next car or the next whatever, next million followers on Instagram is going to make you happy, then then you're not doing the thing that you meant that you started the podcast with, which is celebrating what is right. Savoring what is. And I think that enthusiastic gratitude for what we have is the fastest path to enthusiastic gratitude for what is on the way. So one detachment mm -hmm. equipoise, thank you for teaching me that word, I would say is a key ingredient in manifesting your big ambitious goals, but to speak to meditation and how it can actually allow you to uh, accomplish more. I mean, my book is called stress less, accomplish more, which is hilarious because I think if I were to write that, I don't know that I would write that book again today with this world, with this climate, because I do feel like the world is changing. I do feel like we're moving more into a feminine, aligned, magnetized, discern, like flow sort of um, energetics on the, on the planet. I would write the book again if, if I was starting back in 2017, right? Because I was, my gift is taking esoteric concepts and communicating them in a way that is attractive and accessible to a mainstream audience. So I'm just going to meet you where you are. And hilariously, I think my, really what I've been doing my whole career is being like, Hey, here's this, here's this medicine, right? Here's this thing that is going to bring you this equanimity that is going to allow you to savor the now, but I've been selling it as a thing that's going to get you that shiny next object. <laughs>
why and the reasons it's so hard to absorb large doses of certain nutrients through the pills, powders, and gummies at the store. Now, when you take these supplements or even consume foods, your digestive system must extract vitamins and minerals and, depending on the nutrient, convert them to a form your body can use. Now, some nutrients depend on proteins to transport them into the bloodstream and to the cells for absorption. Now, often, these supplements contain such large quantities that your body doesn't have enough resources, like transporter proteins, to absorb the nutrients. Since your body can't store water-soluble vitamins like C and the B family, as well as minerals like magnesium, zinc, and selenium, they wind up excreted and never reaching the cells where they are needed to support your immune system, metabolism, nervous system, and so much more. Now, I didn't know all of this when I started taking Live On Labs Lipospheric Vitamin C. I just know that if Skylar was giving them to me, they must be good. Well, it turns out that Live On Labs understands the difficulty of high-dose nutrient absorption, and they became the first dietary supplement company to use liposomal encapsulation technology to enhance nutrient absorption. Now, liposomes are double-layered spheres that Live On Labs uses to surround, protect, and transport water-soluble vitamins and minerals into the bloodstream and to the cells for absorption. The liposomes are made of essential phospholipids, the same material that makes up your cells, so they easily pass into the cells and deliver the nutrients, staying behind to fortify the cell membrane. Now, the Live On Labs liposome encapsulated supplement line includes vitamin C, a B vitamin complex that contains pre-methylated folate, a magnesium specifically formulated for the brain, and the master antioxidant glutathione. And guess what? Only the ingredients necessary for maximum absorption. That means no sugar and no fillers, no colors, no artificial flavors. If you don't want to know what that tastes like, and trust me, you probably don't, make sure to follow the instructions on the package. Uh, right now, Live On Labs is offering Commune listeners free sample two-packs of all their liposome encapsulated supplements with any purchase. This is a great way to try all six of their powerful supplements and get accustomed to their weird, unique, goo-like consistency. Just get yours at liveonlabs.com commune. This offer is only available through my link. You must go to liveonlabs.com slash commune. Live on Labs has a 100% satisfaction guarantee or your money back. So you have nothing to lose. Go to liveonlabs.com slash commune. Yeah, I was something that I was thinking about last night in anticipation of this conversation, because that was one of the things I was going to ask you is sort of demystifying the practice. We talk a lot about that. We got to demystify the practice so we get more people in, under the tent, right? Yeah. But does kind of marketing the practice, you know, with a litany of future benefits like optimal performance and productivity at work, et cetera, mm -hmm. does that sort of hollow out the true purpose of it? Um, <sighs> Obviously, 
you're using it as a as a very effective lure, given that you've now taught more than 55, 60,000 people to meditate. So it seems to be working. But how, how do you how do you think about that? Yeah, thanks for for addressing that. Like for me personally, and I get I'm nobody's purist, right? Like the people who want to like go to this core of the core are going to go to the caves of the Himalayas and study with those teachers. That is not my role in this cosmic play. I don't think that's where my gifts are best used. Um, my gifts are best used of being a bridge, being a translator, like really bringing things to a mainstream audience and making it fun and entertaining and being like, hey, you guys, sit quietly in a chair and you're going to have better sex and you're going to make more money. Hey, did you know that you could actually yeah. use your pleasure <laughs> to pray? Did you know you could actually tap into your sexual energy and then get more of all the stuff that you want? And here's my moral justification for that. Here's why I feel okay sleeping with myself yes. at night is that I don't care why you start meditating. And I have enough anecdotal evidence at this point that it doesn't matter if you start meditating for the most shallow, superficial, materialistic, greedy reasons. If you do it every day, you're going to be less of a dick, right? Like you're going to be nicer. You're going to be kinder. You're going to be plugged into nature. You're going to be more intuitive. The greed will start to fall away. And I've seen it happen thousands and thousands and thousands of times over. And so I just feel like my job is to get people to the medicine and then they can take the medicine and then they get to decide, do they keep doing it or not? And do they shift their lives or not? And I've seen it happen enough where people change their careers, they change their companies, they change the shape of their companies. They start initiatives that really start helping the planet and other people. And so I, uh, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still for the candy coating plan, <laughs> putting the candy coating uh, on the medicine. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, listen, I started a thing called Wanderlust. It was as demystified as one could get as it came to yoga. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, you know, come to the mountains and listen to a DJ and, uh, you know, drink some smoothies and get your yoga on, you know, whatever. And I look back at it, you know, with a tiny bit of vomit in the back of my throat, you know, for really? all the th reason. Well, listen, I'm proud of it in for many, many reasons, mostly uh, because of the relationships that it forged between yeah. other people and certainly between me and my network of my community. Yeah. But, you know, I do look back and I say, boy, I don't know. I mean, it, it, does girl talk and Shiva Ray, was that really a, a good thing? I mean, not, not necessarily a bad thing, but like I, I do have, uh, did What's I, your fear? Like, it, like, did I cheapen the, the practice? Here? What's that? Did I did I cheapen the practice? I guess is what maybe and what there's if a you little. Did? Like, what does that mean, cheapen it? And what if you did? Then what? Mm. Then I'm going to hell. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, no. okay. But I mean, truly, okay, like, I, mean, I know not to go into a therapy session, but I think it's a valid point. Like, what is the fear there? Um, I don't know. I mean that that. You know, traditions um, are important, and it's a um, yoga. If you really look at yoga or meditation, which really initially more or less was, were the same thing. Great generalization there, but like yoga, chitti, vritti, naroda, or whatever, potentially sutras is like yoga is the 
progressive slowing of the fluctuations of the mind, basically, mm -hmm. which is kind of saying that yoga is meditation. Yeah, so I would are... argue that yoga was designed to prepare the body for meditation, that Shivasana, the corpse pose, were practicing dying, and all the asana practices, asana means seats, were preparing the body to become a seat for that corpse pose and that transcendence of practicing dying, even while we're still alive. 100%. I'm with you. 100% there. But mm -hmm. did, and we won't, we won't hover over my misgivings with my own past for too long here, but did essentially creating sort of a lycra fest on the side of a mountain, you know, hollow out this notion of really of what Patanjali wrote of the progressive slowing of the fluctuations of the mind such that one can find union such that one can step into that integrated consciousness in which the barrier between the identification of self and the identification to being interdependent in the world begins to break down and dissipate that's why we're into it right but did it just become like a you know six-pack abs kind of situation I mean, in my personal opinion, not at all. Like I experienced transcendence no. and oneness many, many times in many classes with brilliant teachers at, at Wanderlust as, you know, I would come to present, but I would take classes. And I remember I was maybe 18 months postpartum and I took amplified yoga and I, I got yeah. my period yeah. back. Like I had so much energy and Shakti flowing through my body that my period came back after breastfeeding for 16 months. And I remember moments where I was fully connected with the divine in yoga classes and meeting teachers that I had respected and looked up to for years. And like, yes, I'm exactly probably the, I'm like a rich white lady, right? Come and wear my Lululemon pants. So like, I am the person that you're talking about, but God is in all of us, whether you're wearing Lululemon or not. And so if one person has the experience of transcendence of community is formed around these healing modalities, if you reach people that you wouldn't have otherwise gone to Rishikesh or the Himalayas, then I say it was a resounding success. Okay. Well, if we've got nothing else out of this podcast, I feel a little bit better about myself. Thank you. Emily Just call Fletcher. me next time. You're afraid you're going to yoga yeah. hell. Yeah. yeah, without the record button. Um, okay, rewind for a second, because you said okay. the word, the G word. And to be candid with you, I'm sort of trying to, to expire the God word. Now, I use it, and I have used it interchangeably uh, with spirit or nature or consciousness in the past but i know that's not how my neighbor is thinking about it so you had a wonderful definition of god and i don't have it at the at on my lips so do can you provide it yes i'm, I'm just trying to feel into my is this still my working definition of god and i think the answer is yes so i would define god as the collective consciousness of all that is so me and you and these computers and the plant and your dog and your car and Pluto, the collective consciousness of all that is, that Brahman, that everythingness, that's my capital G God. But I will use that interchangeably. I like to use, if I'm going to use a euphemism, I will use nature, capital N nature. Mm -hmm. Because to me, that describes like the force that is creating it all. It is the 3D manifestation of it. And it feels like... If there's an earthly connotation to it, it's it's reminding us that, oh, yeah, like mother, father, nature is also a part of this G, G word experience. 100%. Yeah. I mean, there is this, or sometimes I use cosmic intelligence. Yeah, That's I a love little that. woo woo. But, but yeah, there, there, we are 
uh, I mean, Brahman, you said it that, and this I would say is the, really the target of meditation, at least in my life, is that mystical experience of feeling like I'm the delegated adaptability of some oneness, of some greater unified intelligence. Mm -hmm. And it, yeah, you know, in those, in the brief glimpses that one has of those moments of, um, then, then I think that is where I, I resonate back with God because I, I think Christ, honestly, his, his context was Hebrew, right? So all he knew about was the Hebrew God, but my gut tells me, my intuition, my right brain tells me that he had an experience not unlike Buddha, that he essentially felt at one with a greater intelligence. And I don't know how you feel about that. But well, yeah. I'd love to bring this back to, now that we're on Christ consciousness, I'd love to bring it back to the masculine feminine balance because okay. the journey for me in the past three years has been very much shaped by and, and fueled by Mary Magdalene. Um, and so I think that the, the Magdalene conversation is a really important one to be having right now because, because of the imbalance that we're seeing in the world right now where it is so masculine and by the way just for anyone listening i'm sure this audience knows this but just to take masculine and feminine out of gender that truly like all genders have masculinity all genders have femininity and i like to think about it from a point of a cell or an atom like uh, zach bush actually said this on my podcast he said you know the, the masculine would be the the membrane the the boundary of the cell and the feminine is the flowing undulating gel inside you look at an atom and you have the structures the cube-like structures and the feminine is the light that penetrates that or the, i guess like it fills and animates that um that atom and even with shiva shakti right it's like the lingam like the temples that i was referring to in india the shiva shakti temples there are lingam and a yoni um or what i would call hoo-hahs um but it's like the <laughs> the, the the lingam would be flaccid until the shakti energy comes and wraps around it and activates that masculine energy and so in most creation mythologies, there is the masculine and the feminine, like you said, the yin and the yang, the Shiva and the Shakti. And from there, from that balance, creation happens. And what we've seen in the West and certainly in Christianity is the, the very deliberate removal of the feminine from the mythology. And so Mary Magdalene in the Bible is represented as a whore. And yet in the, mm -hmm. in the teachings that I've been studying and in the, in the, I guess, interactions that I've been having energetically, she was a disciple of Isis, the Egyptian goddess of motherhood and fertility and sex and magic and, and a deep tantrika, like had been studying these ancient energy, energetic tools in India. And there's even arguments, depending on who you're talking to, that Jesus and Mary Magdalene spent time in India, spent time in Egypt. Like there's three years that are not accounted for in the Bible and by historians. And so the thing that I just think is important to bring to light is that Mary Magdalene seems like this almost this feminine version of Christ consciousness and that it took the mm. two of them together, both in these very realized states, seeing each other to create the kind of impact and the kind of healing that happened at this moment in history that allows us to still talk about their consciousness thousands of years later. And mm. so I, I just, I, 
I think it's important because if we want mm -hmm. to bring a, a feminine balance back onto the planet, we need to start to look at the places in our history and in our mythologies that, that the feminine has been removed. And, you know, the Magdalene manuscripts have been like written, ripped out of the Bible, like scraped off of the tablets. And, and yet, if we are to solve these challenges that we're facing now as a species and have a great time doing it, I think we want to find that masculine feminine balance inside of ourselves. Hmm. Yeah, so interesting. Yeah. And then, of course, this brings up the other Mary for me, who was depicted, of course, as a virgin, chaste. And, you know, the only way that the, the Son of God could be born was through immaculate conception. Mm -hmm. So we've ripped that sexual energy, the act out of the equation. Yeah. Uh, because this corporeal body here is, is base and of the earth and to the earth it will return and our soul needs to, we need to sublimate it yes. through denying it. <laughs> Wait a minute. And, uh, the whole reason that God or goddess incarnated was so that they could enjoy the body thing. Like, so they could enjoy the body time. Why are we trying to skip it? Yeah. And then in some strange twist of cannibalism, we're supposed to eat the transubstantiated <laughs> blood uh, and drink the blood and body of Christ, well, you know, such that we can then go to heaven. I mean, the whole thing is is, is very strange. Well, um, this summer, I did a bit of a priestess pilgrimage to Greece. Um, and it, the, we went to Eleusis, Crete, and Delphi. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, and I went to Eleusis based on, like, to study the Eleusinian mysteries inspired oh by the so book. Cool. The Immortality Key. Have you read The Immortality Key? Uh, no, but I heard him interviewed and it was just absolutely fascinating. And I've been yeah. quasi obsessed with it now. Yeah, so. like 10 out of 10 <laughs> yeah. would recommend. I would highly recommend yeah. having him on the show. I'm trying to get him on my yeah. show as well. If I do, I'll send, I'll connect to you if he's, if he's down. Right. But so Let's Brian Rescu, 10 years he spent researching not only in the Vatican Library, but in the private papal library, like what was going on in these ancient ceremonies and where these priestesses were serving plant medicine, doing fertility rituals and, and counseling generals, poets, scholars, philosophers, Plato, Euripides, Aristotle. Plato, Aristotle, yeah. <laughs> totally. yeah like for 3000 years, the Eleusinian mysteries would happen. So, you know, his argument, Brian Rescu's argument is that the, when we take, when we eat the cannibalistic, drinking the blood of Christ and eating the body of Christ, that this is a euphemism for the ingestion that was happening in the Eleusinian mysteries where people were actually ingesting some sort of a psychedelic, maybe the precursor to LSD ergot, maybe some sort of a mushroom mixture. And now they've actually have the, the technology to go in and look at the, um, like the molecules of the chalices that they were serving. And they have found remnants of these psychedelic ingredients. But the thing that is so interesting is that it, in taking the psychedelics, you are communing with the divine, right? Like you are transcending your individuality and connecting to totality in a similar way that we do in meditation, in a similar way that we do in pleasure practices, in full ecstatic practices where you transcend your individuality and connect to totality. And so it feels like that the when you go to church and drink the grape juice and have the cracker, that's like a like a, a facsimile, a faint, faint facsimile of what it might have been like to plug yourself directly into God, to turn up the dial on your own divinity, which is what so many indigenous cultures have been doing since the beginning of time. And again, I think that's a bit more feminine, right? Where you're like, everybody plug in yourself. We don't have to go through a lineage or a structure or a tradition. 
We know that this is in all of us, that that animating force is equal and beautiful in all of its expressions. Hey, it's Jeff, and I'm excited to tell you about one of our partners here on the podcast. Vivo Barefoot is a natural health lifestyle company on a mission to reconnect people to the natural world and to their innate potential from the ground up, person by person, foot by foot. Created by Galahad and Asher Clark, two cousins from a long line of cobblers, Vivo Barefoot draws upon three simple barefoot design principles, wide, thin, and flexible. These design principles lead to optimal foot health and natural movement. Vivo Barefoot makes their footwear from the best materials nature has to offer, allowing your feet to move, to breathe, and to perform with every step. A million years of engineering, also known as evolution, has yielded the perfect blueprint for standing, walking, and running. Your feet. When left to their own devices, they can cope with everything from walking and running to jumping and dancing, but cram them in a modern shoe and you cut off their natural potential. Now, I've been wearing Magna Forest boots for hiking the trails here in California. I love the feeling of the connection to the ground and their airiness while still providing me with the basic protections. I also get a ton of comments on the unique and attractive design. What's more, Vivo Barefoot is a certified B Corp. Vivo Barefoot is giving feet the freedom to move as Mother Nature intended. The best piece of technology ever to be put into a shoe is the human foot. So you can get 15% off your first Vivo Barefoot order at vivobarefoot.com and use the code VIVOCOMMUNE15 at checkout. That's vivobarefoot.com and use the code VIVOCOMMUNE15 at checkout. Reclaim your natural potential. The journey starts with your feet. Sometimes I think about if you were to have this experience of Christ consciousness, uh, you know, in, in a Southern Baptist church in Alabama and stand up in the middle of the congregation and being like, I am the son of God, <laughs> that would be like blasphemy. <laughs> but, you know, if you did that within a Hindu or Buddhist concept context, you know, it would just be like, whoa, good job. You woke up to who you really yeah. were. Yeah, you are. And, who am I? I'm God. You're yeah. God. We're all God. <laughs> And by the way, I'm from Tallahassee, um, Florida, and I was raised Southern Baptist. So you're speaking my oh, yeah. language. <laughs> yeah. Um, so let, let's get into some of your current work. I mean, in, in embodied manifestation and, and wherever you want to take it, because I, I want to tap into what you're most efflorescent over. Ooh, your vocabulary is just so titillating. Um, mm. Okay, so yes, embodied manifestation. <laughs> <laughs> I think let's start there. So what I've been teaching with Ziva for, well, Ziva was meditation for many, many years. And then the Ziva technique is mindfulness 
meditation and manifesting. And I really do find that when you do those three things together, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And I believe that if you try to like meditation without manifesting is fine. Like it's going, you're going to have that experience of connection and presence that we were talking about. But if you, if you manifest at the end of the meditation, where you have that dopamine and serotonin, where you are connected to nature, where you can hear how nature wants to use you, I just find that the manifestations are so much more effortless, impactful, connected versus um, trying to manifest like an egoic desire or an addictive longing. You're able to actually discern like what is my intuitive desire like I said, versus addic addictive logging. So that's really the, was the foundation for this, is that this has always been the Ziva technique. And then, like I said, my life changed a lot in 2020. Um, went through a divorce, three weeks later, met my best friend who's a world famous Tantra teacher, met my cosmic love. A few weeks later, moved in with Regina Thomashauer, AKA Mama Gina, also known as New York Times bestselling author of a book called Pussy, A Reclamation. So you might imagine that at 67 years old, this living legend who's been teaching womanly arts and goddess practices, living with her, like the transmission in the school that that has been. And so, like I said, it felt like nature just started fire hosing me with this PhD in sacred sexuality. And I was like, thank you, <laughs> like lovely. But it didn't feel like it was just for my own edification. It felt like, hey, like it's time for you to help to communicate these things in a way that people get. Because how many billions of people on planet earth are never ever in a million years gonna go to a Tantra retreat? How many billions of people on planet earth would never even think that their own pleasure, that the, that the pleasure chemicals that nature has installed inside of them could possibly be used as a form of prayer? And so it felt like I had the ding, ding, ding moment for me, and this is a little embarrassing to admit, was that it wasn't until I realized that I could use my sexual energy to supercharge my manifestations that I started prioritizing my pleasure. <laughs> and I'm embarrassed to admit that because it just speaks to like the ingrained like misogyny and patriarchy and sort of capitalism that we're all swimming in, that it's just like achieve, earn, acquire, do for everyone else. But don't like pleasure can come last, right? Like earn your money, take care of your family, handle the house, do your taxes, work out, look hot, be smart, study more. And then like maybe in two minutes before you fall asleep at night, maybe then like flood your body with those beautiful pleasurable chemicals that nature has gifted every single one of us. And that we managed to somehow believe over tens of thousands of years of conditioning that, that that part is bad and wrong and a mistake and a sin. And if we utilize that gift that nature gave us, we're going to go to yoga hell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do it, but don't let him see it. <laughs> because he's up there in his panopticon with a moral abacus and a sexual <laughs> regulatory manual. Yeah. Um, no. Um, well, so, so help like connect this for me really as a practice, because, yeah. you know, I'm just like a 53 year old dude, like in a 36 year old relationship, you know, being a householder. So yeah. help, help me connect. Yeah. Where is my sexual energy? God damn it. I need to cultivate <laughs> this. This is my next step. See, yeah. you're on the cutting edge. So I have, there's a path for me, you know, there's some footsteps yes. uh, from in which I can follow. So here we go. Yes. So, okay. So here's the practice. Um, so I, for the past three years, I've basically been taking everything I've been learning and trying to translate it into a way that feels 
inviting instead of contracting, that feels curiosity inducing instead of terrifying. Because again, most of us have been conditioned like that's bad, that's wrong, you're gonna go to hell. And actually my friend Layla said to me, for tens of thousands of years, ecstasy has been used as a purifying tool. That ecstasy has been seen as a way to connect to the divine, not as something that would keep you from it. And when she said that to me, that ecstasy was seen as a purifying force, it was something I couldn't unhear. And I really like, started learning and training and, and figuring out how to frame this. So what we, what we birthed is something called sacred secret. And so sacred secret, and the, the big secret is that we're all God pretending to be human, that we're all divine, just masquerading as humans. And, and that, the, that's the secret that's hiding in plain sight. That's the, sort of like the big movement is to help people turn up the dial on their own divinity so that we can solve these challenges and have a great time doing it. The formula, practice to your real question is very simple. Three steps and they all rhyme. Visualize, alchemize, magnetize. So first you want to drop into meditation and you want to listen, right? You want to visualize what is the thing that I would love. And, and I am at right now really framing this as a selfish individualistic practice of like, hey, what do you want to manifest? What would you like to visualize? What's your version of heaven on earth? But really the thing that excites me and the big visions that I'm having is like stadiums filled with people going into coherence with themselves and each other, holding a shared vision for the planet and the species, and then building all of that creation energy to, to like dedicate that energy to the dream. And my hypothesis is that if we can get tens of thousands of people holding a shared vision and in these connected heightened states, that we, we may in fact change the timeline. And, and the alternative is like, keep driving the bus off the cliff. You know? I mean, we're like, that's crazy, Emily. I'm like, no, what's crazy is the very, very probable human extinction that we're facing right now. I'm just suggesting that we feel good and place the order which is my, my, my simplest formula for manifestation. Feel good, place the order. So visualize, alchemize, magnetize. So we visualize the thing that we want. We then need to alchemize anything standing in the way of it because usually there's something blocking you from your dreams, some trauma, some conditioning, some misogyny, racism, something that your parents told you when you were 10. So we just lean right into that. We like find out what is it that's keeping me from my dream. We give that thing the microphone, let it express its sacred rage, its sacred sorrow. And we move very much into like an alchemical somatic experiencing practice, which has been so fun, so powerful because at the end of the day, like even 20 something years of doing this work, therapy, ayahuasca, darkness retreats, meditation, rounding, like you name it, studying the Vedas. I just keep coming back to the most powerful medicine we could possibly do is to feel our feelings. That it's like, oh, feelings mm. are meant for feeling. And that's what emotional alchemy is. That's what the alchemized piece is. It's equipping people with the tools to actually feel the bigness and profundity of their feeling so that they can clear the channel and make sway and make way and make space to feel their pleasure. So that's where the magnetism comes in. So magnetize is basically, we start to turn on the body. We start to tap into that magnetic force inside of all of us. And we build that, what I call creation energy, right? So creation energy, it, yes, it could make a baby, but it could also create a book or a company. It's just, it's a life force and you can do whatever you want with it. 
And every time we harness it, we don't make a baby, which is good news because it'd be very crowded on planet Earth if that were the case. And yet we have that same level of divinity available to us if we start to learn how to harness it and access it. So we build that creation energy in the body and we start in the hoo-ha. And by the way, the hoo-ha, everybody has one, all genders, um, male, female, trans, non-binary, and it is both the anatomy and the energy center around it. And then we allow the energy to build up into the heart. And by the way, the electromagnetic frequency of the heart is about 5,000 times more powerful than the head. But then we allow that energy to build all the way up into the head. And at the moment of peak pleasure, at the moment of heightened bliss, then we send all of that energy to the dream. It's like you're dedicating that energy to the thing that you are manifesting, almost like you're making love to your dream. And the cool thing about Sacred Secret is that what I'm talking about right now is like, sure, like very, you know, rated R. It's very... Um, like I'm talking about using your sexual energy, but it can be done with play. It can be done with breath. It can be done in a really simple, innocent way. And you can use the same formula, visualize, alchemize, magnetize. Hmm. So if you were to kind of leverage more of your sexual energy to mm -hmm. sort of create this Kundalini rising or this, this creative outburst, um, is are there tools or practices that you recommend specifically as a means to kind of harness the hoo-ha energy? I mean, it, mm -hmm. you know, is this self-pleasure or is, is it uh, group pleasure or how do you think about it? Yeah, so I actually just led an at-home retreat. We just um, closed the ceremony last night and I had, you know, hundreds of people from all over the world like doing this formula, visualize, alchemize, magnetize. And last night in the closing ceremony, I had everyone work on the energetic plane. So last night, no one was touching themselves, no one was doing self-pleasure, but they already knew, they already knew how to access it. So they could do it even in a hands-free way. And so they were able to access these heightened, very pleasurable, very creative, very magnetic states, even without a physical manual self-pleasuring practice. Um, so you can do it on the energetic. You can also do it with breath. I teach a breath called lifegasm breath. And so um, I'm happy to just show it now, um, which, which is fun. So you just breathe into your heart, exhale all the way to empty. And at the bottom of your exhale, it's like you wanna let your hoo-ha open, like a flower is opening. And then you take a long, slow inhale and you squeeze your hoo-ha and you keep inhaling and you breathe that energy up into your heart and you keep inhaling and you breathe that energy all the way up into the middle of your brain and you keep inhaling and you squeeze your hoo-ha and you imagine that your spine is like a tube of toothpaste and you're squeezing all of that energy up into the middle of the brain and you take one more sip of air and you squeeze and one more sip of air and squeeze and then exhaling ah, all the way to empty, imagining trillions of cells just flooding with all of that bliss and ecstasy and creation energy. And you do that three or four times and then what starts to happen is in the brain, there's the pineal gland and the pituitary gland. And one looks very much like a penis and one looks very much like a womb. And in this spot in the brain, it's called the hall of Brahman, right? So Brahman, again, this God consciousness, this everythingness. And if you do this breath a few times, the pituitary gland will actually ejaculate into the pineal gland. And it's like you have this little brain gasm and it secretes like the precursor to melatonin, which is then the precursor to DMT, which is the God particle.
So when I say we are turning up the dial in our divinity, I do not mean that as a euphemism. I mean, you are actually chemically starting to flood your own brain with more God particles. <laughs> with, and when you do that, and then you line your head, heart, and hoo-ha up with each other, they get into coherence with each other. And then you're pointing all of those to your dream. It starts to feel like magic. It's, it's not magic, but it's like a, it's an amplification of all, everything that works about manifestation. You're just doing that on 11. Well, I know what I'm going to do this afternoon. Um, Amen. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I had like Tom's wintergreen pouring out of my ears. You were just in one uh, breath. <laughs> well, yeah, it was toothpaste. I was squeezing the tube. Oh, but great. Okay. Here's I the thing. you felt like minty in your brain. Oh uh, no! Well, I—I I, I mean, I, I can tell it's, it's good. This isn't. This is good for me. This is really, really good for me. I will Why? say, because I need a new practice like this. I have a lot of kind of like top-down, conscious top-down pressure on involuntary bottom-up stress or whatever. I have a lot of those kinds of things. Yeah. This is more energy generating. Yes. Which is really good for me. Um, yeah. I think. It, I think it will be really good for me. And also yeah. embodied. Right. Like I'm the mm -hmm. same. Like I've been studying meditation, consciousness, neuroscience, sitting down. Like here I am, Emily Fletcher, like Broadway performer for my whole life. And then I was just sitting quietly in a chair for 15 years teaching. And now I'm singing and dancing and moving and breathing and using music. And it just feels like such a more holistic practice. And yes, meditation is a mm. part of that. But really, that's why it's called embodied manifesting, because we're like bringing the whole body into the play. And also the thing I don't want people to skip is it like good luck accessing your full pleasure if you've spent four decades numbing your pain, right? So we really don't want to skip mm. the alchemical step. It's not as fun. It actually it is as fun, but it can be a little scarier because we've been trained for decades to not feel our feelings. But if you really go in and give that rage the microphone or that sorrow the microphone, it can it makes so much more space for the pleasure. And because we are just realistically swimming in so much sexual trauma and shame and conditioning, that if you equip yourself with the tools to feel the profundity of even the bigger, darker emotions that you have, then you are more equipped to start to really reclaim that sexual energy for yourself and heal or integrate any conditioning or trauma that you might have been swimming in. Hey, it's Jeff. And if you're a regular listener to this show, well, you know that I explore a wide variety of topics related to health. And right now I am experimenting with a bunch of different techniques and approaches to optimize my own well-being. And part of this tinkering involves what I put into my body and what I don't. And this is why I love being a member of Thrive Market. They have a vast selection of organic foods, olive and coconut oils, teas and coffees, supplements, and so much more. I just got a Thrive delivery the other day that addresses my morning protocol that includes my favorite greens powder and some MCT oil. And it's delivered right to my door via carbon neutral shipping. So I have a special offer to commune listeners. If you join Thrive Market today at thrivemarket.com slash commune, then you'll get $80 in free groceries, 80 bucks. So like you, 
I support companies who are mission-based and committed to sustainable business practices. Thrive is a certified B Corp, and take it from me, it's not easy to get that certification. I had to do it once. Now, when you join as a member, Thrive also donates a membership to a family in need. This is so important because so many people are living in food deserts right now in which they are unable to access nutritious food. Thrive has donated $4.5 million in healthy groceries. Delivering healthy food to neighborhoods in need directly impacts the chronic disease epidemic that we are facing and that I talk about so much on this show. So can your regular grocery store do that? Mm. Well, now it can when you go to thrivemarket.com slash commune. If you join Thrive Market today, you'll get $80 in free groceries. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash commune. Just also a brief note from my left brain that the precursor of melatonin is serotonin. And so if your pineal gland, which is often referred to as the seat of the soul, right, is is also the gland that produces melatonin, which is, you know, can be set by exposure to certain spectrums of the light spectrum, et cetera, mm-hmm. but that the precursor of that melatonin is serotonin. So if you're doing some sort of serotogenic activity, um, that actually makes quite a bit of sense. Yeah. Um, and that's why we start with the meditation, right? Yeah. We start with the visualization. Yeah. That's fascinating. And I, and I think, you know, I think one of the reasons that people don't engage, for example, in meditation is that it feels like such a dismal chore for most people. You know, it's just a dirge, you know, it's like, oh, we're going to church and we're going to sit in some hard, cold pews and sing nursery rhyme God, about God or whatever. You know, it's like awful. Who would want to do that? So this is like you're, the notion that this is just grooving. Alan Watts used to call meditation just grooving with the present. Just oh. groove with the present. God right? bless Alan Watts. This, I don't know. I just have fun. I mean, you're a dancer. This is another thing he used to say. He's like, people didn't dance to get anywhere. You don't go and do a dance to get to a certain place on the floor. You dance to dance because it's joyful to do. And if we can reframe these kinds of practices as joyful, the way that you're doing right at this very, very moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is a way of bringing more people into it because who doesn't want to feel that sense of exuberance and joy yes. versus like, oh God, my, <laughs> you know, it's on, meditation's on my chore wheel. Yeah, you and know? it's like what our parents used to do to punish us. Go sit in the corner and think about what you did. Uh, Right. Right. And so now we've been trained for our whole lives not to feel our feelings. We have a backlog of unfelt feelings. We've been punished by sitting with ourselves. And then now we're like every high performer on the planet is like, meditation is my key to success. And you're like, oh God, I got to go sit and do that. 
it. And so, you know, that's why I try to make this stuff as fun, entertaining as possible. And by the way, I don't think that Sacred Secret is a replacement for meditation. I think that meditation really is the the foundational work. It's like the thing that makes the soil fertile to plant the seeds inside of it. Um, but you're right, like we can make the whole thing a little bit less of a dirge. Yeah. Like sometimes when I'm entering my meditation practice, I'm like, oh man, I got a lot to do today. Am I going to make this a priority? You know, and I'm like basically harvesting reasons not to do it, yeah. you know? And then I'll be like, wait a minute, just why don't you sit here and just groove with the now? Oh. Don't, don't complicate it. Yeah. You know, just groove with the now. There's a, I'm jumping around a bit, but there was this fascinating paper. I think Andrew Huberman refer, referred to it at one point, and I know he's a big, big fan of yours. Um, he, it was a, a paper written by Dan Gilbert and, and Matthew Killingsworth, which is, I think, called A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind, mm -hmm. and um, which is an odd title for a scientific paper <laughs> it's a little, yeah. uh, you know it doesn't it doesn't have a scientific ring to it but it was incredible it was the product of significant clinical research which they found that the happiest people were those who could align what they were doing with what they were thinking about so mm. essentially yoking action and intention mm -hmm. and of course in this day and age, we're almost always thinking about something other than the thing that we're doing. Especially with social um, media. What's this person doing? What's that person doing? What's their plan? What's that? Yeah. And, you know, so one of my practices is to be uh, very open to this notion that I'm not going to shut off the spigot of thoughts, right? And they're going to come in and they're going to arise and they're going to subside. And yes, I'm going to witness them, et cetera. But to what degree can I refine my capacity to constantly come back, come back to that <laughs> breath, come back to that single pointedness of mind. Mm. And, and then just as a practice and that, yes, it will punctuate my quotidian life down the line. If I continue to do it great. I like that too, but just the, the act of doing it is like a, is fun. It's a game. You know, oh, it's yeah. something to enjoy. Oh, uh, it's like, oh, mean. now you found the pleasure even in the practice itself, like a dance, and the, I'm the yeah. and I'm doing it for the point of doing it. Yeah, yeah. it's like Sudoku, <laughs> <laughs> but, but not really. I you know? really like that, and I would say, I mean, it's a bit of a counter argument to what I've built my whole career on is that we meditate to get good at life, not to get good at meditation. But I think that you've been practicing. I imagine so many different styles and so many different ways that have probably come off and come back on. So the fact that it is, you are a bit in it for the now of it. I really love this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. it's how we always joke, you know, my, my daughters are all dancers, at least my younger two are dancers. And when Skylar's grandfather was alive, it's like, Oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I go, we want to dance. We want to dance, you know? And he would say, Oh, well, there's no future in that. <laughs> and I would silently be thinking, exactly. There's no future in it. That's why they should do it. Present. They're winning the game. He thinks he, he thinks they're playing a different game, but they're playing the real game of presence, joy, flow, bringing the frequency of heaven to earth right here, right now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So good.
So you don't come off as someone with a meditation practice, and I, I mean this kind of as a compliment, strangely, <laughs> but like, you know, what we're used to is, have you ever seen Eckhart Tolle? Have yeah. you ever seen him in person? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't do shit. He, I mean, I, I, in the nicest, most powerful way, he comes out on stage. It's actually amazing for anyone who hasn't ever seen him. It's a very Spartan stage setup. I've seen him in like in a big theater. Yeah. And so he, he comes out, there's like a little rug in an armchair. And he comes out and, you know, there's this nervous chatter Beige happening. Suit. <laughs> yeah. And like before he comes out, there's this nervous chatter in, mm -hmm. you know, in the, in the little pockets of chatter peppering the the audience and he comes out with no fanfare no introduction and he sits in the chair and he just sits there and like slowly people catch on that he's there and like the little chatter starts to evaporate out of the sections of the audience you know shh, until it's just like dead quiet and he hasn't said a word and he will sit there for five or ten minutes just that way and just completely capture the energy. It's, it's amazing. But, and he's very powerful and, and obviously has, has done so much for the practice and, and to spread the practice, but he, he's not, uh, I mean, he's, a, he's a gifted orator in his own way, but he's not effusive. Mm -hmm. You're effusive right? Your energy is on full display. So in some ways, I think it's so great because you deconstruct that myth that you need to be like a monastic to, to engage in this practice, right? Yeah. Nobody's going to accuse me of being a monk, especially not after the last three years, <laughs> just leading hundreds of people into simultaneous climax, holding a dream for the species. Yeah, it monastic yeah, yeah. what I'm up to. But, but thank you so much for, for bringing this up. And first of all, like mad respect to Eckhart Tolle. The first gig I ever got, I had just graduated as a meditation teacher and I don't know how, but I got invited to speak at the Saban Theater and I was sandwiched between Reverend Michael Bernard Beckwith and Eckhart Tolle. <laughs> I was like a baby little meditation teacher. And I just had Reverend Michael Bernard Beckwith on my podcast as well. And it, I was crying tears of gratitude because he's been so instrumental in my life and in my journey. And like, I watched The Secret when I was 22 years old and it just felt like a real full circle moment. Anyway, Michael Bernard Beckwith did a stand-up set. First time ever in his life he had done a stand-up comedy, 10 minutes, it crushes. And then I'm on next and I'm backstage just like so nervous. And the stage manager's like, go. And I go, I walk on stage and then they start playing a movie on top of me. Like they said, go on the movie, not on me. So I'm on stage just at the wrong no. time. <laughs> people. And I just start like a, like a showgirl wave and I just like walk off stage and people are dying laughing. It was so funny. But the reason I'm telling this story <clears throat> is that Eckhart Tolle, he said in the program, Everyone had put what they were going to be talking about. And then Eckhart said, content will be determined in the now. And I was like, mic drop. Oh, like, I cannot wait yeah. to get to the point in my career where I'm like, bitches, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to just channel it in the moment, <laughs> um, <clears throat> which is, I really appreciate. That is and absolutely. I get this well, He trusts himself yes. implicitly, right? Yes. He just trusts himself. And I would say, I, I mean, we are wildly different transmissions. 
And I am, there's a similar phenomenon that my least favorite thing is naming a talk ahead of time because now I am much more in my feminine flow. And I'm just, I can't like, how on earth would I know what talk to give until the audience has actually assembled because I don't know what they need Mm -hmm. to hear. And so that's been an interesting journey as well. But as far as being, I want to speak to the monastic piece versus the householder, because I think it's really important. And I think it informs and sort of buttresses much of what we've been talking about so far. And I think that there's been a big game of telephone and a big mistranslation when it comes to some of these austere practices and some of the, not not austere is not the right word, some of these practices that bring us home to ourselves, some of these practices that help us to viscerally remember our own divinity. And and I think, and I'm sure it's happened many ways in in many times, but specifically with India, because there are two mountain ranges on the top and two oceans on the bottom, it was geographically protected for a really long time. And I think that's why we associate so many of these practices with India, you know, yoga, meditation, breathwork, tantra. I think that many, many indigenous cultures were practicing their own versions of this, but they didn't have that same architecture to protect it. So it took a few more thousands of years before we could traverse those mountains and sail those ships to actually invade that country. And they were very smart about protecting the knowledge. And so when India finally started getting invaded and colonized, they very wisely put this ancient, powerful, sacred knowledge into the brains of the monastics, into the brains of the reclusives, because they knew that they would be the last people to be invaded. They would be the last people to be found. And oftentimes these things weren't written, right? Like they had human pundits that were basically like living encyclopedias. And so it would only live in someone's consciousness. So if you murdered the people, then, then the then the transmission and the knowledge would die. And so this is an Emily Fletcher theory, but my theory is that when India started getting colonized and invaded, that when the colonizers saw, finally discovered the monks, like being eritarians and breathitarians and taking their resting heart rate down to almost dead and doing these seemingly superhuman things, they were like, oh, the monks are closer to God. Oh, it's the fact that they're monastic that's making them so holy. Oh, let's us start to pretend to be more like monks and maybe that will make us closer to God. And then somewhere in in translation, we lost that there are actually householder practices and there are monk practices and that it's actually less than 1% of the world's population that is monastic by nature, that that is celibate by nature. And the other 99% of us are householders who like having sex and like being in community and like having jobs and like raising children. And we have different tools. We have different tools to connect to the divine because we have less time in our day. And this, I'm really passionate about this because Ziva is a householder practice, even though it's 6,000 years old. It's not a derivation of a monk practice. It's not an adaptation or a watering down of a monastic practice. It is a householder practice that has been passed down teacher to student for many years. And so I'm passionate about it because I think that one of the reasons why so many people think that meditation is a dirge and hard and a waste of time is that they're trying to do practices that weren't designed for them. And then where this is infusing my work now, is that it very much speaks to people's relationship with sexuality. Because somewhere along the way, we thought, well, if I could be a monk, I'll be closer to God. And like, look at the Catholic Church, right? We're we're telling people who are not celibate to stop having sex, to deny their nature. And when they deny their nature, it does not go away. It sublimates and it comes out in destructive and perverted ways. And so I think what we need is not more suppression, not more pretending to be something that we are not, but rather an integration, a reclamation, and a moving towards wholeness and to reclaim our sexuality as holy. Mm. Amen. 
or ohm, I should say, probably in this case. <laughs> yes. But yeah, but a hundred percent. I mean, obviously, even the Buddha, uh, you know, the whole Madhyamaka, the middle way, is you know this path between renunciation or, or asceticism and, and hedonism, and it is actually finding um, the spiritual within the material. Um, I have never heard it said like that. The middle way is actually between like being a renunciate and a hedonist. Wow. Sure. I love that. License free. Um, (laughs) License free axioms, spiritual axioms, courtesy (laughs) Jeff Krasnow. I mean, we're all borrowing from somebody. Um, In fact, many of the Buddhist texts that were subsequently written, and you're right, I mean, these were oral traditions. Uh, there's like, or they were like scrawled on a palm frond. I think it was like the tree piccata or whatever was like the original um, sutras from the Buddha that were literally on like, they were in a basket on a palm frond. They were like, oh yeah, good luck. That ain't going to last. Um, they had to pass it, you know, to, to real people. And then you create the the sangha, right? And so it, and that's what I love about Buddhism is that there's no final word of it. It's just the community around it that iterates and keeps passing it down. But even in you know the later texts of Buddhism, all credit there was no author on it. All credit was just given back upstairs to the Buddha. <laughs> you know, it was great. Even uh, Viktor Frankl when he wrote uh, *Man's Search for Meaning*, the first edition of it, I believe, although this is, this could be apocryphal, but there was no author line on it. Um, and, uh, you know, which was interesting because he gave credit for the kind of the spiritual foundational work behind the the book to prior generations, you know, um, he was a stoic too. So Mm. it's, it's interesting. Yeah. I think, you know, for those of us who aren't monks, who are essentially just trying to navigate a righteous path in the world to have practices that meet us where we are is incredibly important. And then, you know, maybe we get the kids out of the home and, you know, we find a a slightly more ascetic way. I mean, in Hinduism, there's these four ashramas, right? So after you're a householder, you become a forest dweller. I love that. It's like, I'm moving into my forest dwelling stage. I mean, you're hope, close. You know? I mean, you're like, what you've got going on is certainly <laughs> closer than Brooklyn. <laughs> True that. And then, uh, and then maybe, you know, you go out into the forest. I just read Siddhartha again. Oh. Have you ever read that book? Yes. Oh my early. God. It was like when I need to revisit. It was an early book for me. My God, it's just brilliant. Um, Herman Hesse. And right? then, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I mean, in the twenties, I believe. Damien. And, mm. and Damien, it's, it's a book about a little boy and, but the inscription is something along the lines of, and I can't remember the inscription or like what I took from the book, but it was the idea that God is not just God of the light. Like if you believe mm. in a God, if you believe in omniscience and omnipresent, that God is God of all of it. And actually this is my understanding of Tantra is that it is the, the ability to find God in the places where you thought that it was not. Mm. And that's why, that's why sexuality is associated with Tantra because it has been so far removed and conditioned and shamed away from the divine. That it's like, if you can go there and find God even there, that it's the, the amount of energy that is available to reclaim is bigger than if like, oh yeah, going to church, of course that's holy, right? Like, of course that's divine. 
And so anyway, her, uh, Damien is a Herman, a Herman Hess book that I highly recommend. Hmm. Okay. Maybe that's next on my list, but I, I see that. I mean, finding the mystical in the mundane or these uh, moments of transcendent beauty in the ordinary, you know, the blade of grass, you know, growing mm -hmm. through the cracks of the sidewalk or, or what have you, you know, this is, um, this is not meditation to be clear, but this is a way of, you know, appreciating what you have, loving what you have. You and, could call it a meditative uh, and, life, right? That your whole yeah. life becomes meditative. Your whole life becomes mindful. You're seeing that divinity in the blade of grass, in the next step that you're taking, in the eyes of every human that you interact with. And to me, that is the point of meditation. When I say mm. get good at life, mm. that's what I mean. Because from mm. that presence will come creativity. From that presence will come gratitude. From that presence will come compassion. But it's very hard to live those things, even if we know them to be true. We don't do them out of fear. We don't do them out of dogma. We don't do them out of doctrine. We do them out of the inspiration from our heart. And that can come as a byproduct of plugging yourself into home every day, twice a day. Hmm. That might be a beautiful place to leave it. I love hmm. that. Hmm. Um, Give us a little window into the things that are uh, most exciting for you or anything uh, that you have kind of on the horizon that people will be interested in and, and generally how people can keep abreast of all of the exciting things you're doing. Ah, <laughs> oh, thanks for asking. And thank you for your vocabulary again. So I'd say one thing I'm really excited about is season two of the podcast. So it, the podcast is yeah. called Why Isn't Everyone Doing This? And amazing humans, like I mentioned, Reverend Dr. Um, Michael Bernard Beckwith, um, Robert Edward Grant, Zach Bush, Blue, like so many of our beloveds are on the show. And it's just, it's getting richer. Um, I'm, I'm becoming a better host and, and I'm getting less afraid. Like I'm, I'm showing more of this, uh, the audacity of me and the, the like weird, wild, witchy stuff that's happening in my world. Um, <laughs> yeah. So why isn't everyone doing this is the show. And the other thing I'm really, really excited about is the healing that's happening on these sacred secret retreats because it's, mm. It's five days. It's a moment to unplug. It's a, it's a time to go and feel safe. It's a time to really reclaim your energy from any traumas or shames that have happened. A time to really embody the feelings and feel the feelings in a place of safety. And I've, I've led three so far. We're about to do our fourth. And the people who walk into those rooms are not the same people that walk out. And really what I mean is they become more themselves. Every person leaves hotter, brighter, happier, like more radiant, plugged in with their own beauty. And so the sacred secret sheets are really exciting for me right now. And then also it feels just like a new chapter for Ziva. Like, you know, Ziva online is probably the, the easiest way. Like if people are like, wait, my meditation does not sound like what this lady's talking about. I'd say Ziva Online <laughs> is probably the place where they would want to go because it's fun. It's entertaining. It's only 15 minutes a day for 15 days. And at the end, you're going to have this foundational practice that allows you to come home to yourself every day, twice a day. Mm. Oh, and so I, it's all at ZivaMeditation.com. All that stuff I just said, ZivaMeditation.com. <laughs> yeah, we'll be sure to put it in the notes. And, I, you know, I don't know if, if Commune Topanga can meet your scale, but um, but perhaps there's a retreat to be had there so we'll uh we'll take that offline yes. um I'm so and uh 
And I, I let, let me just also set up our next conversation because um, I have three daughters and, uh, you know, being a teenager in this world at this moment is not simple. Um, and of course, I've, you know, been dealing with my own anxieties forever, but I've just accrued more tools thanks to you. Mm -hmm. And actually, thanks to a number of the people that you just named, mm -hmm. uh, Mike, particularly Michael. Um, mm -hmm. but, um, but yeah, I've accrued these tools, but of course, when I, as a father, try to bring them to my children, I can't even get in the door with it before they say, don't you dare fucking say meditation, dad. And they give me like a giant eye roll, you know, so Just I know you start talking to them about secret sexuality and they're going to be yeah, like, well, once, one step at a time, Fletcher, come give me a break. <laughs> um, um, but um, let's just to set up our next conversation, I know you've done unbelievable work getting kids yes. uh, to meditate um, So with, with Ziva Kids. So I'll just plant that seed and, yeah. and we'll, um, you know, just as a, a little. Second, a 30 second snapshot of it. Sure, just lay the compost, but no real, don't, don't give okay. it away. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's basically just for four to 14 year olds. And we developed it with folks from Sesame Street and Harvard Child Psychologists. And it's all about letting your kid become a superhero. And it's so fun mm. and entertaining. Yeah, it is just great. It's so fun um, and effective um, <laughs> because, boy, our kids, what they're going through right now, it's, in, it's intense. God my son's home so there, is no day right now. And so he's doing like Zoom school. And I just want to say, God bless every parent and teacher who did this for years. I'm doing it on one day and I, I need to go do my third meditation of the day. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are a ray of sunlight. Thank you, mm -hmm. Emily Fletcher. Um, to be continued. And uh, zivameditation.com, that's the place. But it'll be all in the notes. And I will see you again soon. Mwah. Thank you so much for having me. I adore you. Okay, thanks for listening to my conversation with Emily. Check her out at zivameditation.com. And of course, if you enjoy this show, and you'd like to receive 30 days of free all access to commune membership, well, scrawl us a review on Apple Podcast. Just scroll down to the review section and tap write a review, then email support at onecommune.com with a screenshot of said review, most preferably a good one, to gain access to more than 150 courses. Whew, yeah, we've been busy featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders all free for 30 days. And while you're there, subscribe. God damn it. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly anytime with suggestions and criticism of the constructive variety at Jeff K at onecommune.com. Lastly, but certainly not leastly, I would like to thank the folks that make this show possible, including Mr. Jacob Laub. Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Cooper Ma, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson for the win. What a team. Okay, that's all from the commune for today. My name is Jeff Krasno, and I am here for you.
Hey, it's Jeff. And when it comes to your health and longevity, you hold nothing back. You understand what it means to push harder and reach farther and go that extra mile. Well, this relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build strength, speed recovery, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, your DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance for the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist right there in your pocket. If you're interested in this innovative service, I've got great news for Commune listeners. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash Dr. G. That's insidetracker.com forward slash D R G.